My name is Giulia Scarpaleggia. I am a Tuscan-born and bred country girl, a home cook, a food writer and photographer. I teach Tuscan cooking classes in my house in the countryside and I've been sharing honest, reliable Italian recipes for 10 years now through my cookbooks and my blog, juicekitchen.com. If you love everything about Italian food, big crowded tables and seasonal ingredients, join us and follow Cooking with an Italian Accent. Welcome to Cooking with an Italian Accent, episode 6. Today's episode is quite special. We recorded it a few days ago at the St. Mark Cultural Association for Florence Writers, where Tessa Kiros and I had a conversation with David Orr about cooking and writing. Tessa Kiros is the author of 10 cookery books and an avid traveler. But for me, for me, she is one of the most inspiring writers, a friend and a neighbor. Ten years ago, when I wrote my first blog post on my blog, I quoted her and this passage from Folding Cloudberries. There are some things that don't change much. I find the smell of a dish, or the way a certain spice is crushed, or just a quick look at the way something has been put on a plate, can pull me back to another place and time. I love those memories that seem so far away, yet you can hold them and carry them with you, even forget them, and then, with a single taste or hint or a smell, be chaperoned back to a beautiful moment. Today, 10 years later, she is still an inspiration. I was so excited to sit with her and David R. talking about the things that I enjoy the most. Food, cooking and writing. So bear with us if the recording is not perfect. We were in a crowded room overlooking a street in Florence. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you are listening to a podcast. Rate and review the show. It will help us to be found online and build up an appetite for Italian food. Share with your friends too. Don't forget to visit juleskitchen.com to discover new stories and recipes from Tuscany. Enjoy the episode. I hope you will like it as much as I like to be there with Tessa. All right, thank you guys for coming on uh, this nice uh, blustery night. Um, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you two fantastic writers to my left and right. So I'm gonna introduce them to you um, right now. So Tessa Kiros, born to Finnish and Greek parents, <coughs> parents in London. Um, in her youth, she spent her formative time in different restaurants in London, Sydney, Mexico, and Athens, you know, trying to find people who inspired her. Her first book, 12, was actually self-published in 2005, and it's a seasonal representation of Tuscan food categorized by month, which I'm happy to say is a dog-eared and worn in our own house from years of use in our own kitchen. That's it, wonderful to know. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a great, great pleasure to, uh, to come full circle. And she's published 10 cookbooks, 10, in her latest book, Province, Provence to Pondicherry, here. It examines French culinary influence in the world, including the regions of Provence, Pondicherry, Guadalupe, Vietnam, among others, and it won the Food and Travel Magazine Travel Book of the Year. Bravo. 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 Thank you. 
And to my right, your left, is Julia Scarpeleggia. Uh, she's a food writer and photographer born and bred in Tuscany. She started, started her blog, Jules Kitchen, in 2009 uh, to collect family recipes and stories. He teaches Tuscan cooking classes in her family home in Cole, Valle Alsa. And she's published five cookbooks, and her latest one, from the markets of Tuscany, the English translated version is here. It's a collection of traditional and seasonal recipes and a guide to the best food markets in Tuscany. So welcome to Tessa and Julia. So, so before we dive into these, these, these books and your, your kind of your library of, of cookbooks, I'd like to say like these are not ordinary cookbooks. I mean, these are, I would say, works of art disguised as cookbooks. <laughs> I mean, the, the, there's elements of travel writing in both of these books. There's elements of vivid, stunning photography and an emotional core that's obviously informed by a, a really strong disposition for food and culture for both of you. So obviously there's something going on here. That, that These are essentially amazing, well-written books. I'd like to first start at the very beginning and go back to your youth and, and your childhood and what informed you to kind of create these kind of books. So uh, Tessa, maybe we start with you. Could you talk a little bit about your childhood with respect to your love of, of food and culture? Well, you know, I think that what comes to mind now while you're talking is essentially, I think, and probably Jules and I have this thing in common, what we both, or what we all like to do is eat. <laughs> and what we all have to do is eat. So I think it's a great way of combining your life and just making it better. So a lot of my um, collections are based on things that I want to collect for myself. So from a child, I was always interested. I, I loved food, and we were, we were in, a, in a multicultural situation, whether we wanted to be or not. I mean, we, I was born in London. I was about four when my father went on a safari, which I also actually think is quite brave. They went on a safari to South Africa with a friend of his, and he came back and said to my Finnish mother, let's go and live in South Africa. <laughs> so they had, at that time, my, myself, who was four, and my sister, who was five. And they went to live in South Africa. We arrived there, didn't know anybody there. I remember the, te the teacups we used to get at the hotel. And we started then, I went to many different schools. I went to seven different schools. So the one was a Jewish school, and um, my mother, of course, was Finnish, so she had her Finnish community, just like there's a community here this evening, so the Finns would get together, the Greeks would get together, and my mother would be counting in Finnish, hoxula, hoxula, and the salmon would be arriving and the mustard. And this was just part of our life. And then the Greeks would arrive and the Cypriots would come with their halloumi, and the Greeks would be having the lamb on Easter. My mother had Scottish friends. I was at a Jewish school. I used to go to and spend Passover with them. So for me, it was a natural. What did I eat? This is what I ate, this was my food. And we were growing up in South Africa, so it was, um, you know, my second book, uh, book Falling Cloudberries, was a collection of all of that. And everybody was like, wow, how did you make this book? And I said, I just wrote down what we ate. <laughs> <laughs> I got the recipes for my friends and from my family, which is essentially what it was. But the, behind that is the interest and the want to do it. Like you say, you want to put it in the book, you want to record it, and 
Essentially, I want to record it for myself and make it beautiful. I mean, they're, they're, so that unique disposition of all your youth and all these cultures, I mean, for your father to just impulsively bring the family to South Africa, obviously he wanted to do that. Does that come from your father, this idea of wanting to do something? Probably, because, I mean, he's recently just moved to Thailand. <laughs> like, he spends half of his time now between, you know, in Thailand and half in South Africa. My Finnish mother now lives in Greece. So probably it does come a bit from my family. And I think that you get comfortable with moving around. The thing that inspires me most is culture, what people do in their place, what people do in the community, what they do with their products. So speaking of culture, I mean, Julia, you come from a obviously strong culture here in, in Tuscany. And um, you have a podcast. And um, in addition to your blog, I think it's your blog is over 10 years old. 10 years old. 10 years old. Uh, so congratulations on, on that. And in your latest episodes of your podcast, you talk about your earliest food memories. And I was wondering if you could talk specifically about your first one you mentioned. In yeah. So... Um, a step back. I, I was born in Tuscany in the house where my, my grandmother was born and my father was born. So I didn't travel a lot. Uh, and all my memories are in that house. So that's the, the, the backdrop of all my memories. And I was, I think, five or six. Um, and I had my adenoid surgery because I was a skinny uh, child. I wouldn't eat anything. I was pale totally different from now. Um, and coming back from the hospital, my grandmother cooked me bracciolina al pomodoro. So there are fried cutlets. They are then cooked in tomato sauce. And it's a dish from the countryside because you just need a thin slice of beef and it multiplies. So you can feed many people with a tiny slice of beef. So my grandmother made that uh, cotolette bracciolina for me. And I was sitting at the table in our kitchen uh, and there was the sun uh, behind me and there was probably also my mother next to me. And I was like surprised by that food because for the first time, I was five or six, I could taste the food. Because before it was just, I don't know, bland. Everything was bland. And I remember I asked my grandmother, what did you put in these bracciolini? Because they are so different. They are so good. And she said, they are the same. It's you that is different now. Mm -hmm. And so that is, for me, the first memory. And the nice thing is that those bracciolini uh, were also cooked by uh, grandfather. So my grandmother is my father's mother. The grandfather Remigio mentioning now is my mom's father. He lived in San Gimignano. Uh, it was alone because uh, my mom's mother died when she was 14. Uh, so he was cooking for, for his daughters. He was cleaning the house. He was a very good father and grandfather. And he would cook these bracciolini, fried, almost burnt, uh -huh. in a little uh, red enamel pan. But I remember them. It's probably the only food I remember from my grandfather, but they were there. So that's really the first memory. The same bracciolini on both sides of my family. And I still love them, and I make them for during my cooking classes for people to eat them. And I'm very happy to share this recipe because it's part of who I am, basically. Yeah. But, and so with that in mind, <laughs> it struck me listening to your podcast that you're, you're talking about this event. And the detail you have in memory, I'm, I'm going to quote, you're at a table in your grandmother's kitchen. There's light coming from behind, probably an open door. <laughs> There's a red enameled pan yeah. with two handles. <laughs> and you were sort of thin slice of beef, bracciolini. And you tasted it, and, you, and things changed. So obviously, you have this strong emotional uh, feeling towards food. I'm super curious about these life-changing sort of events. And you mentioned that you would come back from surgery at the time. 
do you think that was a played a role in sort of slowing down and understanding it uh, the food or is it uh, is it just a mature maturity that occurred over time um, I think I just got hungry really hungry for the first time and I've been hungry for all my life from that moment uh, and so that's why I really love food uh, I love food I love eating and I love cooking uh, to make good food that I, I, I will then eat and I like to, to share these recipes and to take pictures that make people hungry so that probably changed my life because for the first time I was hungry and this hunger is what is is a constant in my food writing and in my pictures and in my <laughs> books and on the blog and yeah. Emotional hunger. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so let's start talk about your books. Um, so Tessa, I mean, and, and Julie, both these books are, are beautifully written. And as I said, there is a sense of immediacy when you're reading this. They both have similar styles, but, but subtly different. I mean, so Tessa, you have kind of a, a um, you know, immediacy to, and you write in these two paragraph vignettes uh, when you're talking about a place. And um, I want to read one of my favorite passages from, from Provence to Pondicherry. So Provence to Pondicherry is organized um, among the, some of the colonial outposts of France. So you have things like Guadeloupe, Vietnam, Provence, as in France. <coughs> um, but here's a, a paragraph or a, a phrasing I really liked. So, it goes like this. We always knew. I'd always read of these Provence images, the closed shutters, sun shining through the leaves of the plane trees and their shadows that fall onto surfaces, the sounds of cicadas and pastis glasses scattered on bar tops, life flowing from one calm day into another. It's hard to fault anything, really. It is overwhelming how understated everything is. And that's beautiful writing, I mean, for, for, for lots of different reasons. But I love the first sentence saying, we always knew. So you're framing it in a, you have a, this kind of preconceived notion of a place. And it strikes me that, you know, when we look at Tuscany and Provence and these kind of areas, we all have kind of these preconceived ideas or cliched ideas about what it is. And somehow you're both able to make these places completely fresh. So how do you do that? Well. You know, you need to study what goes on behind it. So I think what I was thinking about in that is it's obvious, like everybody loves Provence, like you say, what am I going to give that's different about it? I had the same thing with my Venice book, you know. So it's just being real in the moment, arriving in a place and thinking, how do I feel and what do I see? And yes, you go there and you think Provence, what is it? It's the light, it's the, all those impressionists that were there. You know, they've, they've, many have been before, many will come afterwards, but what resonates with me about it is really how amazing the aesthetic, the French countryside aesthetic, it just really resonates with me. And when I go there, I just feel so inspired. I want to bring everything home with me. Other than the food, I, w I would bring a wall home from <laughs> You know, and um, I just arrive in a place and I trust. And I think... I've got a few pages. Obviously, I come away initially with a lot more than what's in the book. Mm -hmm. I just write down everything that comes through me, everything that I see, everything that I taste. So it's multi-level, multi-layered at that point. So, and I talk to people. But beyond all of that, it's also the history of a place. And as you're writing, are you writing longhand in journal form? Or is it how, how are you, your process in that 
place? My process is my initial um, experience of it, what I feel, what I see, what I smell. How do I feel when I go to a place? And then I just get my antenna open mm. and I go and I like to talk to people. People are always the most amazing thing to me. So you also have to judge people. Not everybody is like totally open. I watch, I observe. Mm. Mm. And you know, writing about countries like Provence or like Tuscany as a foreigner is not easy because, you know, you have to sort of not be arrogant about it, not... Um, so I write from a certain point of view and I try and keep it casual and I don't want to get into anything too political or judgmental. A, a book is a wonderful platform that you can actually just... It's like giving a bunch of flowers to people, mm. you know? And not to go like too deep. This is just a cookbook at the end of it. It's not going into the government records or anything like that, you know. I think somebody in a Wall Street Journal had some kind of, you know, he said, did you know that Kiros, does she know about the workers from Guadeloupe coming back to Paris? And I thought, that wasn't really my department. That's not where I was going. I was interested in Madame Clotilde in Guadeloupe and how she got her chocolate cake recipe. Hmm. You know, and how she made her broth, which was on the French techniques. This is the interesting thing for me, the anthropological side behind it. So I study the people, where they eat and what they do and why they do it. That is my passion behind it. I mean, both of you do that really, I mean, really, I mean in your book, actually, Julia. So I'm going to read a passage from Julia's book here. And um, it, it very much covers the same kind of themes of people with food. So this is about uh, Florence, and every uh, way Julie's book is organized is she has all the different markets in Tuscany. She has a, a kind of an expository, um, single-page or multi-page you know, description. It's very personal. It's your interpretation of these markets, and it's, it's very much your view on things. But you, you get to that sense of, of being right there with you, where you, where you also do, Tessa. So this is uh, Florence's markets. It was Florence's markets, however, that ultimately won me over. Drawn in by the colors and aromas, at first I would follow the trails of scents of ripe late spring strawberries or porcini mushrooms from the autumn woods. But then I would get to talking with vendors, their lively eyes behind heaps of fruits and vegetables who were always happy to share their tales and their recipes. So, you know, you, you see food from the lens of these people who are, you know, not only selling, but are, are passionately talking about them. So my question is, in your recipes, are you thinking about the food itself, or are you also thinking about, in some way, the people that you, you visualize when you're writing these, things, these recipes? Well, it's, <clears throat> it's always about the people. Uh, it's either the recipes from my family or all the recipes in this book. Because uh, to write this book, we traveled through Tuscany. Uh, my experience uh, was related to Siena and Florence, but this book wanted to cover from the Lunigiana and Garfagnana down to Maremma, so we had to meet people. And all the recipes in this book are uh, a gift that I received either from the family or from the people I met. Uh, some, sometimes they were aware, they were gifting me a recipe. Sometimes they were just giving me ideas on how to combine ingredients, and then a recipe was born. Uh, but anyway, every recipe uh, for me is like, I remember when I got the recipe, who were the people that were sharing the recipe. Um, 
I met so many interesting people in uh, in Maremma, for example. It was really hot. It was summer, and there was a, these little wooden wooden huts selling vegetables. And I asked them for the recipe for um, aqua cotta. And he said, uh, this man said, I'm sorry, I don't cook, I don't know the recipe, but if you come with me, we can cross the field and we can go and ask to that woman living in that house. So we crossed the field, it was like in a movie, I mean, it was hot, we were running uh, to reach this house and we found a chef there. She was a cook in a restaurant, she was retired. And we sit down and I had this little piece of paper and I had to fit all the recipes in this little piece of paper and she gave me the recipe for aqua cotta, she gave me the recipe for the cinghiale, for the wild boar, and then also a secret recipe for a liquor that she said, I'm giving this to you, but don't share it. So it's not in the book. Uh, <laughs> and she was Is so nice. No? no. <laughs> I kept the promise. Uh, so this recipe in the book, these recipes in the book are all from people. So they remind me of the people generous. that I met. Generous people. Then I met someone who was a little bit less generous, like uh, we were in um, near Luca. Um, Montecatini, we were in Montecatini, and there was this woman, she was so proud of her cacciucco di ceci, and she said, but I'm not giving you the recipe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I have this cacciucco di ceci that I still had to know how to prepare it. But in the same town, uh, we, we were, um, so it's, it's a nice story, there was an American reader of my blog, and she sent me an email saying that she had a cousin in um, Montecatini, and she would love us to meet. And I was going to Montecatini for the book, to research for the book the weekend after. So we went in this hotel, and it was like being, again, in a movie from the 60s, mm -hmm. uh, in Montecatini, sitting in this nice hotel, drinking uh, high tea because it was very hot, talking about recipes. And so the pollo in camisanera that is in the book is the recipe of Maria. And so when I think about the recipe, I think about Maria and the afternoon we spent together and their family that was older and were friends because she called all the people. So it's, it's I've written this book and Tommaso has photographed the book, but then there are, I don't know, 50 people in the book and all the recipes are from these people. Yeah. And people don't even know no. how they've contributed or inspired you a lot of the time. It might just be one word or one thing that walks past you. I remember when I was in Vietnam, something just walked past me. And I just said, what is that? And it was a woman carrying one of those baskets on her shoulder. And it was it ended up as one of the recipes in the book, Che, which I had to do a heck of a um, zigzag to try and find the recipe. And there were things in that, not from the woman, only from what she walked past looking like and inspired me with jasmine blossoms on it. And um, I'll try and find it quickly now to show you. I then started researching that recipe because it inspired me because of the smell. So that was um, something that they eat in, in Vietnam a lot, which is basically black beans cooked with sugar. And um, there was cubes of grass jelly and things that I never even heard of and tapioca balls and I had to come home and research and try and make these and patchwork things together just so that I could recreate that image that I had because I thought I have to actually get this in a photo even about the taste but then even the taste it's amazingly refreshing because it's served with crushed ice and cold coconut over this black bean sugary stew which is not anything at all like we are used to. And that was just one woman that walked past me with a beautiful basket. Oh, I don't know if you can see from there, but... Mm. 
So I wanted to create that exactly as I had seen it, with the coconut, with the ice on it, and with the jasmine flowers, because that was in my memory. So there's a different process of collecting recipes. I mean, that's artistry, basically. I mean, that's not. That's like, that's interpreting the world as you see it, in in, in your way. I mean, so, and I think it, so. It strikes me this is not necessarily a choice that you're making. This is like just how you do it. You're, you're viewing food from people because it's not a choice. It's it's inside of you. That's how you're viewing what's happening. Yeah, and you know, um, actually, Julie and I live very near each other. And even that, I'm thinking as I sit here, what a what a coincidence that is. Because Leontina, my friend, reminded me. She said. Do you remember how you met Julia? And Giovanni remembers it very well. Julia sent me a letter. This was way before blogs or any kind of communication. A beautiful letter, handwritten letter, saying that she had found my book and she lived very near me. And she, and she just mentioned some beautiful image. In fact, I must look for the letter. Giovanni just says to me, it's one of the most beautiful letters that <laughs> I ever got. And um, I'm sure it's in that box where I've got everything. But um, <laughs> there was a beautiful image, because I think she said that if you stand outside your house and I stand outside mine, I think we can see each other. Because <laughs> we live about eight minutes' drive from each other with just countryside between us. I mean, so as Julia's talking now, I actually think this is how she is. This is how she communicates mm -hmm. with people, just like she reached out to me with a letter is how she will reach out and look into the eyes of a vendor. I mean, these are obviously authentic versions of, of your, your own way you live life. I mean, how did you craft that over time? Was your first cookbooks this kind of style? Were you happy with them? Or how, how was the evolution of that? Uh, the first cookbook was just um, copy-paste from the blog. <laughs> and there was everything inside, so from uh, recipes from the south of Italy, because my grandfather was from the south of Italy, and recipes with mm, foreigner ingredients and family recipes. It was an experiment with a small, small publisher. Then the second cookbook was something real, I mean, a real cookbook in Italian and in English. And then it has been translated in Dutch, in Polish, and in Chinese from Taiwan, which is like, I had the book, I don't know what's written there, but it's amazing. Um, and every book was, uh, you know, an exploration of something different. Uh, the second book was I Love Toscana, so it was about Tuscany. Uh, the third book was about, um, it has a long title, uh, Cucina da Chef con Ingredienti Low Cost. It means uh, cheap rec recipes with uh, low cost ingredients. Uh, the title is too long, the cover is ugly, but <laughs> Yes, uh, but uh, the book is very interesting because it's my approach to cooking. So it's how I would cook uh, a good meal for a family, for many people, for friends, using just uh, simple ingredients that are not expensive. So uh, local fish, like our pesce azzurro, oily fish, uh, stale bread, which is the staple ingredient of Tuscan cooking, uh, beans and chickpeas, cheap cuts of meat. So how you can use all these ingredients and create very good food. So the philosophy behind the book was really interesting. The book was ugly, again, but uh, <laughs> it's an interesting book. Then the fourth book was uh, a book in a series of cookbooks about cucina naturale. So my book was about uh, natural recipes with fruit. So it was not something personal. I was just developing recipes for a publisher. But it was interesting, again, because uh, I had the chance to cook recipes which were 
savory and sweet with fruit, uh, with a very fresh and natural approach, which is um, a little bit different from my everyday cooking, but I learned a lot from that book. And then this was the fifth book. Uh, and again, we learn a lot, because uh, when, when we make one of these cookbooks, we do everything. So, I mean, me and Tommaso. I write the book, I test the recipes, and I cook the recipes, and then we photograph the recipes, and then we write the recipes and the introductions, and then we send everything to the publisher, and then you have the book. So it's like uh, the, the whole work of a team divided in between two people. So we learn a lot, even, I mean, as a couple working together. <laughs> it, was a, it was an experience. So um, yeah, you grow with the books. Uh, when I see the first cookbook or when I read the first blog post of 10 years ago, what I feel is like, well done, because 10 years ago you didn't know how to photograph, you didn't know how to write about uh, food and cooking, but you were brave enough to try. And so I think it's a learning process. And I think my sixth cookbook that I'm going to start in a, soon will be even better than this, just because I learned from my mistakes and from experience. So it's well, Tessa, I hesitate, I hesitate to ask you to go from all 10 books <laughs> in your library, but well, do you, one, you, one of them is a compilation, and one is a, a journal, to be fair, but those are still published books, and work went into mm -hmm. them. Mm. And can you trace a natural path from, like, there are central themes, or are they all kind of evolutionary versions of a... Yeah, a, I think that they, it is an evolutionary... I mean, I'm thinking about my first book, 12, and the actual difficulty of the journey, as some of my friends will remember, and as Julia's saying, I'm proud of myself, yeah, I am proud of myself, because I know what I did for that. I know what I did to that. I collected the recipes from Giovanni's family. I didn't think that I would be living in Tuscany. I was here to study Italian, so when I first met Giovanni, I couldn't speak Italian, and he couldn't speak English. Um, and I was working in his father's restaurant and studying Italian in Siena. And it was just amazing. I was like, you know, carciofi. And I was so impressed with it. Giovanni one day went and did the shopping and he came in with a piece of Parmesan. And I was saying, wow, this is what people are doing in London, you know? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to record all of that in a cookbook. And I didn't know that I would be living in Italy in all that time. So I did it for myself. And I asked my friend to style, and he's been the stylist on all of my books. Mm. So as an author, I take a lot of the credit for it, but it's very much a teamwork. And I have an amazing team that I work with, which is a wonderful photographer, Greeks. And they come to my house and they travel with me and you know we work together, it's amazing. So I collected all of these recipes and I wrote the book. Um, I took them on first. I said, will you help me? And they said, yes, they would. Um, including the graphic designer, the photographer, and the stylist, and I went ahead and did it. And then I wrote to 45 publishers, and they all said no. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what else to do, because I said I wanted that for myself, at least. I said, I've done all the work, how do I do it for myself? So I printed and self-published 1,500 copies. With two very young children, I drove to Greece, well, with a boat, um, and printed it myself there in Greece. 
And when we arrived back, Giovanni's mother looked at me, she goes, va bene, io compro 20 or 30. <laughs> she was terrified. And actually, I had, I had asked my father to, you know, give me the initial money at the beginning. And then when, um, you know, when I suddenly had like 1,500 copies of the book, <laughs> I paid my father back in books <laughs> in South Africa. So my friends were calling me from South Africa and saying, I met your father and he sold me a book. <laughs> so, I mean, what I'm saying is that it, it wasn't easy. And I've told the story about how I used to come to Florence. The first time I arrived in, like, uh, Edison's, which was then in, you know, and I said, you know, would you like to buy a box of books? And they were like, okay, you know, leave them over here. But even just to get there, I used to come and leave the car in the parking, and then I had a pram. So I would put the box of books or two in the pram, and then I would be walking back with an empty pram, just smiling. <laughs> and I knew that people were looking at me weird. <laughs> you know, like, what does this woman think she's doing walking around Florence with an empty pram? But I knew what I was doing. So the books had always a life of its own, and I've had wonderful support of my friends, two of whom are sitting over there from the, word, from the very beginning they were there, Lisa and Leontine. Giovanni, who's just all the time just gone along with anything that's cooking, anything that's happening, anything that's going. And it was an evolution, but they all had a life of their own. It was something that just had to come about, you know? Mm -hmm. But it wasn't like so easy. Everybody says, wow, you know? Well, I think you look at uh, these two finished products and, and yeah, knowing the journey you took to get there is, is just, uh, it gives a face to everything you've gone through. Um, but I want to talk about um, a central theme that runs through kind of both your ideas is immigration and culture is mixing. Mm. Um, and it's obviously a theme of your latest book. And given your background, it's only natural that that's how you approach things in life. So can you talk about, um, you know, in this day and age, without getting too political, you know, we are have this nationalistic view now, or where um, people tend to have this view of immigration um, being a problem. And whereas I would say both of you celebrate immigration in your own ways. So can you talk a little bit about that? First Tessa, mm. and then Julia. Well, I am an immigrant anywhere I go. And it's, it's never been a problem for me because I don't know anywhere else. I don't know any other way to do it. I think the one time I did sort of notice it was when there was the World Cup football on and just watching Giovanni like rooting for Italy and my children were also rooting for Italy. We happened to be watching it in Finland, do you remember? And I kind of am a bit more fickle with things like that. Like if England is playing, I'm in and South Africa and Finland and Greek. But that has, so I don't have like a set thing that I, I vote for, but I'm also, I'm very flexible. But I think that is what makes me be able to observe different cultures through a window or through my different space and see what other people are doing. It's what I know. So I think that is my interest, like you rightly um, observed over there, is observing what people do. Because I think that food and ingredients and celebrating food is such a, a beautiful thing one of the first things that people do when they go to a new place. And, you know, they'll go and they'll plant their, their herbs and their spices and their tomatoes or their whatever they can get 
in order to recreate familiar dishes for themselves, which mark the calendar year. And I find this fascinating. You know, watching what people do, not only with the ingredients, because obviously the ingredients need the sun or the correct temperature, so you can't grow pineapples in Finland um, if that's what they needed to do. But in Guadalupe, it is amazing to see that they are using French techniques with rum and bay leaves and um, their own things in, and plus their own character that comes through it. Their own character that, you know, like when I was cooking in India, I was lucky to cook with somebody in the kitchen, Ashok. And that for me is just such a blessing to be allowed to get into somebody's kitchen from a place, because that is the true way to learn. It's not from reading something online and saying, this is, you know, um, on the Wikipedia, this is how they make a curry. But walking into a kitchen and watching how Ashok, through his veins, through his heart, the amount of spices and chili he threw into that pot, I was worried. <laughs> I said, how are we going to eat this, you know? And then, and then I realized that he did it in every single meal. And then I, when I came home, I was also just trying to have the same courage, you know, in the way that he cooks. I love that. For me, it's just such a learning, amazing thing to, to learn something. I wanted to come back from Pondicherry. I brought his chilies back and the seeds, and I wanted to do exactly what he had done. Okay, then when you do a book, you have to sort of tame it down a bit because you're going to a different market. Or, you know, you've got a reader that is, you know, mm. you can't put 12 chilies in, in, a, in one recipe. But it, it's fascinating for me to see what they are doing. So this immigration thing of people always want their own things I mean, is amazing. And, and so the familiarity of a place is um, often, you know, mangled up and mixed. But, Julia, in your, you know, your podcast, you have lots of different stories about um, markets and I, I love the one when you talk about Mercato Centrale. So can you relate that one with respect to the idea of native food in Florence? Yeah. So um, we've been researching for this book a few years ago, and we were in uh, Mercato Centrale in San Lorenzo, and there was a store, um, La Tripperia, selling Oppa, so Quinto Quarto, so selling trippa, lampredotto, and all the other parts of the animal that are not as noble as a filetto, for example. And the, there was a couple there, and they told me that they started selling limoncello and all uh, strange shapes of pasta, because this is what they could sell to tourists there. And there were no more Florentine people going there to buy the trippa, lampredotto, and other uh, kind of quinto quarto. Coming back there uh, last week, we were searching for this store, we couldn't recognize it because now they were selling just limoncello and the pasta with the uh, Italian flag and all the chilies and so on. So just cheap things for tourists. And it was really sad because that was part of the history of Florence being lost. But then there was another shop selling Quinto Quarto and all the people queuing there were not Italians, they were immigrants and they were buying all that kind of offa and quinto quarto for two reasons. First of all, because it was cheap, because there was like a mountain of meat, and I was here, it was 12 euros, like a mountain of meat like this. And also they have the culture and the recipes to cook that. Something that we have lost, because maybe we can do lampredotto and we can do trippa, but I wouldn't know where to start to cook the heart, for example. 
but they were buying the heart and other parts that I didn't even recognize. So this was, uh, um, was shocking, but also heartwarming because somehow immigrants are preserving the culture of Florentine people, just keeping there the hofa in the Mercato Centrale because now they, have, they are the market for them. So now they are buying uh, what we used to buy before. And so this was extremely you know, touching. I mean, that's an amazing like story because it ter- turns on its head the idea of immigrants coming in and yeah. changing everything, like to preserve Florentine culture, yeah. because they know and they're you know it, it's it's amazing. Yeah. Um, so, I have a couple more questions, and then I'm going to open it up to the audience for questions. So, think of some good ones uh-huh. for Julie and Tessa. And uh, but I'm so I'm interested also in how you know the, the mediums that you're both using. Um, so, Tessa, you're primarily you know, a, a travel writer, food writer, books are, are generally your vehicle with, with, with photography. Um, and Julia, you use a lot of the other different mediums, podcasts, um, you know, your blog, your, your website. And, and so how do you manage to take this technology and infuse it with soul? Tomaso. <laughs> uh, it's the main reason. Um, I started with the blog, 10 years ago, when the blog was still the only available medium that you could use for free. And then came the books. Um, then there's Instagram, uh, which is all visual, so it's all about photos, and it's a great way to communicate. Also because um, there you don't need English or Italian. I mean, of course, I write in English there because the, the audience is larger than the Italian one, but still is the photo that is the most uh, important thing. And now we have the podcast. Um, I, I didn't want to do the podcast, I had to be honest, because I thought it was, again, another thing that I had to do. But then Tommaso said, uh, this is the future. Okay, so let's try with the podcast. And I've been having so much fun with the podcast. The, the, the name of the podcast is Cooking with an Italian Accent, because this Italian accent is in my, in my language when I speak, but also when I cook. And so I talk about Italian cooking or Tuscan cooking in the podcast. And every episode is about a specific theme. So there's the market, or food memories, uh, or there will be one about cookbooks, or this one we are recording for the podcast, for example. And it's fun. Uh, it's fun for the feedback. Uh, the feedback is either from Italians, because there are Italians listening to the podcast. I didn't expect this. And they say, I understand you when you speak English. I say, I know. <laughs> and also feedback from... Um, people, normal people, uh, listening and recognizing recipes or um, like the role of the bread in their culture. Uh, For example, in one of the last episodes I was talking about carnival, and because I don't like carnival, but I like carnival food. So I was talking about cenci and fritelli. And the fritelli di riso uh, are important for carnival and for St. Joseph, it was two days ago, for the Festa del Papa. And I received an email from uh, a lady from the US, and she said, my grandmother was Italian, and she, uh, she gave me the recipe for the frittelle di riso, and we are still making this recipe every year for St. Joseph. And then she sent me the photo of the recipe handwritten of the frittelle di riso. So this is, again, another, you know, the, the other face of the immigrant uh, talk, because we were the immigrants going to the US. And, preserving all the recipes. Uh, she, she's still preserving her grandmother's recipe. She doesn't understand Italian. The recipe was written part in Italian, part in English, and it was so fun. So this new podcast um, 
it's like I'm with the people in the kitchen. Uh, you, you just break all the barriers and it's like being very close to people. And it's refreshing because the uh, blog world is getting more and more difficult, but even the Instagram world is quite difficult nowadays. And with podcasts, it's like you are again at the beginning. It's like being with the blog 10 years ago. So I feel very uh, energized and full of energy when I speak in the podcast. And so I have to thank Tommaso because uh, this was a good idea. Yeah, sir. <laughs> At the end, it was a good idea. It's fun. So every week we try to record a new episode and the feedback again is amazing. And it's fun in the moment just to speak freely and to, to, to use my English and... Yeah, don't care about mistakes. I even have to repeat like 10 times the same, the title. Cooking with an Italian accent is difficult to pronounce very quickly. So <laughs> anyway, it's fun. Yeah. And, and Tessa, do you have uh, like a relationship with Instagram and, and uh, tech in general? What's your, what's your view on tech? To be honest, uh, Giovanni is a computer programmer. Yeah. So he often just helps me even turn the computer on. Yeah. Um, I'm not, um, my language is visual. I relate to my world in an aesthetic way, totally, just with colors or with images or something like that. So I just try and translate it. I just use Instagram, which my daughters put me on Instagram a couple of years ago. Um, I use it just to, um, to support my books, I'd say. I think that technology is moving extremely quickly. Um, I like to keep my books and the, my real situation is I like communicating with people. I like to see things, I like to taste things, and I like to feel things. So, for example, I've just come from Australia now and did a workshop over there. I love that. You know, I love this hands-on kind of feeling, traveling, things which um, can be supported by Instagram. I don't, I don't use Facebook or um, I don't have a blog. So for both of you, your primary medium is the written word, and do you use other mediums, well, some, some more than others, to support that? Mm, that. Yeah, which I think is necessary today. Mm. But I think that there's some people who are extremely talented with that. And I don't necessarily think that you have to be multi-talented in every, every aspect. And I think that, um, you know, I try and use Instagram in a way that supports my books. So I know that my books have got great photography, by a professional photographer and words that have been measured to be on a page. So um, I try and support that. Yeah, I mean, Just I, keep my philosophy the same and, you know, keep it real. I know a lot of people that use, like, for example, podcasts. That's their primary vehicle. And it strikes me like if you were to come in empty, for example, you have, you know, you want to, okay, I want to start something creative. Mm. Um, would you still start with a written word? I, I, I would. I would start with visual and written, mm -hmm. definitely, because what I love is collecting it all. It's like, and then collaging it together. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if something new comes of it, I think that you've got to keep up with the technology. You cannot say, oh, no, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to ignore it and I'm going to carry on doing it. Because m most pe many people relate primarily to that nowadays, mm -hmm. you know. So books are... Um, a currency. <laughs> Books are like sometimes a collector's piece or something that maybe not everybody will appreciate now. I still love a book. I have never read an e-book kind of situation because I, I don't like the way that it just stops. You don't know where you're going. 
you know, it just goes on and on and on. And for me, the real feel of being able to turn a page and, and, and see it is, is incredible. Well, so let's open it up to the audience, yeah? yeah. Probably, um, well, you know, the thing that I've always loved to do is travel. And I, I remember at school when they went around in the classroom and they said, what do you want to be when, when you grow up? And when they got to me, I just said, I want to travel. And I remember the teacher saying, but what do you want to be? And I said, I want to travel. And I think that's actually what I did end up doing. And now, if you say, where, where is home, I still don't know. I mean, I won't say that I feel at home in Tuscany. I do because I have a house here and I've got my children here and my husband here. But uh, I feel probably most at home in Greece. South Africa, I've been away a very long time. So when I was 18, the first thing I did was went to work on a kibbutz in Israel as a volunteer and then traveled around. And then I lived in Greece, I lived in London. I did a degree a correspondence degree in anthropology and sociology while I was working in London. I was working in a restaurant, started off as a waitress and then as a chef. So I'm comfortable with moving. I don't know, maybe Greece feels the most home to me. Greece is a place that when I arrive there, I feel, you know, I feel like I'm home. But of course I relate to everything so much. When I, when I, sorry? Yes. My, my Finnish mother lives there, my sister and um, her two children, and my daughter, Yasmin, is actually studying in Athens at the moment. So I went partly to a Greek school as well when I was young, but I, I, I feel that I'm very adaptable. I can go anywhere. In fact, I would love to live in different places still. I'd love to spend some time in the East, I'd love to spend some time in America, I'd love to live in Africa for a bit. I'm, I, I love it. It inspires me, it fuels me, and I love to see what people are doing and to study that. So I think I feel at home everywhere. I have a question for Julia. Um, you have a vast knowledge of Tuscan cookery and, and everything. So if right now, somewhere you found out this Saturday night you had to fix a meal for some long lost Tuscan relatives that you wanted to impress, what would you fix and how would you decide what to impress people? So, I like simple food. I actually, when I cook, I don't like to impress but to feed people. So, I would choose food that is, you know, making you feel good. So, my signature dish is Arista, the roast pork loin. So, I would go to my butcher and have the big color meat. So, it's the part of the Grigio della Montagnola, it's a local breed. And it's not just pale white, it's dark and uh, light, so it's more, the most flavorful, and I would buy that. That would be the main course, because I can prepare that in advance, so I don't have to be in the kitchen when people arrive. Then I would do my grandmother's lasagna, because it's, uh, it's the food of uh, holidays and celebrations, and again, you can do that in advance, so you don't have to be there in the kitchen. I would roast vegetables, 
so that they will be ready just before when people arrive. And the third would be latte alla portoghese, because you can make that day before, mm -hmm. and actually gets better staying in the fridge. So I would choose recipes from what I know that I can cook, and uh, I don't make mistakes with them, but it's still simple, comforting food. Yeah, uh, this would be the menu. If you want to come. We're all good. Uh, you talked about a recipe that a woman gave you and that she asked you to keep it a secret. What was it? <laughs> and did you cook it? Um, not yet. It was oh. a liquor, um, oh. um, bay leaf liquor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Bay leaf. Bay leaf. Laurie. Yeah. 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 Uh, I have a question for, for both of you. Um, uh, when you're Well, actually, one of what Julia was saying reminded me of um, one of the things over here in my La Réunion chapter. And it's just basically things that are going to inspire you and that you're going to then filter out. So you have, I have a form of note-taking, and I jot down, and sometimes it's just quiet for a long time, and then suddenly a stream of something comes through, which, um, for example, over here ended up being my La Réunion chapter. I don't know if you want to have a look at that. There's, um, anyway, it's... So you actually, um, what type of book is it? What do you mean? Is it a, a little notebook like this? Or I always carry scraps of paper with me. Oh, or you use scraps of paper? Scraps of paper, or Julia had a tiny piece of paper, she said before, when she had 50 recipes coming to her from this woman. <laughs> I, I normally, when I'm travelling, carry a little book, and then I write down just whatever comes to my mind. I might draw something, I might take a photo like of that jasmine thing that walked past me. And then um, work through it from there. My food editor actually said to me that I work differently from other people that she says. She says other people work from the outside in and I work from the inside out. I don't know if it's the other way around or whatever, but um, you know what I mean. <laughs> what do you have at home? Do you have like a so I learned from my mistakes because uh, when I was traveling for the market, I had a piece of paper and a little notebook, and I lost some of the recipes. No, now now I have now I have a nice cook, now I have a nice uh, notebook because now I'm starting to think about the new cookbook, and what I did is uh, writing down list of recipes and memories. Uh, and then they will evolve into text. Mm. And still, when I want to write something important, it's still handwritten, not at the computer. So for the blog post, uh, it's still a notebook, and then the computer. Yeah. And sometimes, I, I mean, I haven't done it for a while, but I have done it in the past, is have a little recorder. Like if I'm lying in bed in the night, and I know that I'm, and an idea comes to me, I know that I'm not going to get up and write it down. I'll just say it. And I think that's really useful because it can be driving in the car. 
It was for one of my books, Apples for Jam, that I was lying in bed at night, and the idea came to me, I'm going to put the chapters in colours. And that came to me in the night, like that. So very good ideas come to you when you like lying down and relaxed. And that's not a time that you want to get up and write things down. So I think that little recorder is a, is a good idea. And then when you get back, your memory just serves you, you know, what you need. Your memory will take you back to all your notes, and then you just weave it all together via pictures, notes, words, the sound, the stereo. Generally, I do, because I know that if I went to Provence, I've got the date then, I know when I went. So I'll just get there and I'll write out like a full notebook for Provence. And then what actually stays in the book is very little because you have to filter through it, you're given a space, you're given a, you know, and it has to make sense. One chapter has to hold everything else together. So you can't just have 20 meat recipes, you know, you've got to have a bit of meat, a bit of fish, a bit of dessert, a bit of this, a few notes, a bit of history, a bit of current, a bit of people, a bit of colour, a little bit of inspiration to give people. So I just try and... chapters? Not always, because the book doesn't always start out in that way. But this one did, so I, I very much did. Yeah, for this one as well. Chapters, yeah. Mm. And it was difficult to find the chapters, because uh, 12, 12 chapters was the maximum, and I had to sacrifice some identity. So like when I was speaking with the mayor of Volterra, I said, are you doing a whole chapter on Volterra? No, I'm doing Volterra and Pisa. Ah, oh, with Pisa, no. <laughs> <laughs> so it was difficult to define the chapters, but still, yeah, mm. chapters. <laughs> and then I think that, um, you know, like mine has got six chapters. What I think essentially is the brief. If you have a brief to work with, it's really easy. So what am I actually doing in the book? It's so much easier to work with because you know where you're heading. So my brief to myself is I'm going to Provence, I'm going to Guadeloupe, I'm going to Vietnam, bring out 25 recipes from each place, giving justice to the place and, and honouring the place is really what is my brief to myself. Like what can I give to other people that could be worthwhile? Giving credit to the actual place that I've been to. Sorry? Are you that structured as well? No, say that again. Uh, you know that you, you need to have, okay, this chapter has to have 15 it, or 10 recipes or 5 recipes. Uh, it depends on the book. So for this book, uh, I wanted about 100 recipes, 12 chapters. I was trying to have an even number of recipes inside every chapter and I, there must be a recipe with chocolate, they say, in every cookbook. And then I need a certain number of fresh pasta and meat and fish. So I try, with this book I try to work with it. Uh, then it depends on the books. Uh, recipes. I mean, do you um, start from the stories 
For this book, I start with ingredients because there were some recipes that were made with very local ingredients. So especially for the English translation, that had to be uh, smaller than the Italian one, 10 recipes rest. I had to remove recipes with very local ingredients, like a very specific kind of fish or a special honey from, um, from Pisa. Uh, so that was one of the main things that made me decide these days, this goes. But otherwise, it would be the memories behind the recipe. If there are memories, for me, the recipe stays. Yeah. I think that um, given that it's a cookbook, a huge structure of it has to be the recipes. Like, um, so it's like a, it, it has to be a skeleton of something like that. And I see it like a, like a tree, like a Christmas tree, that then you can just hang on you know, the decorations. But it has to have something that can hold it up. Because otherwise, I think that you can feel it. It has to have a backbone. And the backbone is, it, it, it can be from anything. It has to be recipes given that it's a cookbook, but it can also be your style or it can be a design element. Those are all things that will support a book together. And I think that my criteria is very much instinct, my instinct. Like what do, for me, it's a yes or a no. Can this stay in the book, or is it not, or does it look a bit wishy-washy? Because I think, as an author, that is the privilege that we have, is that we can decide at the end of it, the artistic license, like, you know, why do you think that deserves a page in a book? And if you believe that that photograph deserves a page in a book, then I think it can have it. I don't think that you should, my feeling is that you should never waste, waste a page, but it, it's, it's down to you. You know, people are going to trust you. Who are your um, sort of favourite cookbook writers other than each other? <laughs> <laughs> like Julia, yes, I was going to say. <laughs> like, do you like historical people like Elizabeth David? Do you yes, yes. Uh, I love Elizabeth David. Yeah. Beautiful writer. Mm. Yeah. Ada Jaffrey. Um, Claudia Roden. Uh, my favourite is Laurie Colwyn. Yeah, I love Laurie Colwyn. Do you know Laurie Colwyn? No. She's American. Uh, she's a writer, and then she has two uh, food writing books. Uh, a writer in a writer home? in the kitchen. A writer in the kitchen and more home cooking. Home cooking. Mm. It's beautiful. It's from eighties, nineties. And then we always discuss with my friend Lisa over there. You know. Um, all those little, like, the Laura Ingalls stories and things like that I always found, like, so inspiring. I remember even those kind of, you know, Enid Blyton books, like the famous five who would go on their picnic. I find that kind of thing inspiring. I wanted to go and have those picnics as well myself. So it's not always necessarily just a food book. It can be just a few things mentioned. No, I have not, I would love to go to South America. I've been to Mexico and nowhere else in South America. It's on my list. Are you Brazilian? Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, my friend Lisa over there has lived in Brazil and we've discussed it. So that's amazing. It's definitely a journey for the future. I will, I will let you know. How will I find you? I'm on 
Instagram. <laughs> you see? Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep, okay. <laughs> okay, send me a message then. Thank you so much for your wonderful, vibrant questions and your beautiful face over there. Thank you so much for coming. Lovely to meet you. Bye. <laughs> Shannon? When you are so inspired and you have these great flavors and tastes and things that you recreate yourself, how do you translate that into dosages and a method and these things so that us can recreate your inspired dish the same way you envisioned it to be? Well, there's a, there's a pros and cons of all of that kind of thing because sometimes they have a template. I've, I've worked in a very different way to probably what Julia has worked in. <coughs> Um, and I've always had a food editor. So they translate that for you into the exact cup measurements, which can be really frustrating, because they can also change recipes. And at the beginning in my first book, I was really frustrated. I said, that's not how my grandfather makes his chips. I said, what's happened to the recipe when it came back? And it had become like really standardized, you know, that sort of frying a cube of bread until it turns golden in 15 seconds once you've got the temperature to 95 degrees or whatever it is that you have to fry chips in. And I called them up and I said, sorry, but where, where are people going to get the cube of bread from? And I said, that is not the recipe. So you learn a style, but there is um, a food editor, at least there was a food editor on the job, who is that standard person who translates it into so that it works for people. I've always worked with a food editor. And I still work with the same one that I have worked on now in all of my books, who's understood what I want to give and gives it. And it's, I think it's really important. It's great to have a support. It's great to have a backup. And it's great to have a recipe tested in Australia and America and know that more or less it's going to work in Italy. But do you know, Susan, so continuing the same question, when you actually make it, are you thinking in measurements or just say, throw a bit of this to throw a bit of that <laughs> I'm sure Julia will have much experience of getting these recipes from nonnas, which is yeah. quanto basta, and <laughs> things like that, which is extremely <clears throat> frustrating. But if you're translating it to people who are going to make them, you have to, you have to change it. So that is our job. That is essentially what our work is, is taking these ideas and images and quanto basta. Mm -hmm. How much is quanto basta? Yeah, and making it into first something that we like, and next, it's, you know, it's all very well you making the bracciole al pomodoro on your own, but what we want to do, it's amazing when someone says to me, I've made your carrot cake and I've been making it for years and your recipes actually work. And you would think that was a given if you're writing a cookbook, but it's actually not. Well, my because ovens are different. Yeah, my school are the cooking classes because I teach to people with all different kind of skills. And so a recipe that for me is extremely simple and obvious is not. So I recognize which are the passages that are more difficult to understand or the quantities and everything. And so I try to see recipes from a different perspective. And then when I cook with my grandmother, it's her quanto basta, I have a scale there, and I'm going to weigh her quanto basta. <laughs> and every time it's different, huh? Yeah. <laughs> every time she'll make it differently. But for the lasagne, she, she makes the best lasagna, but every time I try to make them, 
that doesn't work. So I took photos of her making the lasagne, and I, I understood the secret there, because she uses a small spoon to smooth the bechamella and the ragu, and so I could finally understand the secrets by taking pictures, because then looking at the pictures again, I understood where I was doing it wrong. I was too generous with the bechamel and the ragu, and she was like, mm. <laughs> so yeah, pictures. <laughs> so your grandmother's lasagna, is it always consistent? Yes. When she makes it? Yes. Always the same? Always. And she doesn't have measurements? No. 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 See, that's a different... The question sort of follows on from that, which is about, okay, we talked about measurements. When you make a recipe, that's one aspect. Another aspect is techniques and skills. And, you know, I still want to be able to cut onions like Julia Child in that movie, you know? Mm. <laughs> I mean, it just, it's taken me so long to be able to not cut my fingers. Yeah. What are you pitching at with your cookbooks in terms of the skills for people? Basic skills. I mean, yeah. the, the, the food in my cookbooks, at least on the blog, is uh, food for every day. So as long as you are careful not to cut your fingers, you don't need, uh, I mean, filleting or... recipes, for example, to buy on a chicken? Uh, I will say, as, as to your butcher, to like butterfly the mm. turkey breast, and because this is what I do. I mean, or if you know how to do it, do it yourself, yeah. without you know, thinking that somebody should necessarily know how to do it. Because yeah. then that's a separate book. It's like you'll need like two pages on mm. teaching. Or, oh, you know, pictures would be good with that kind of thing. And I think that generally people will just skip what they don't want in a book. And people also have to judge you know, for themselves like how, what, what is appealing to them. Their level of yeah. Someone once wrote to me and said, "I followed your recipe on the steak in the pan with the cognac, and I actually did singe my eyebrows." I did, <laughs> I did say, "Stand back." <laughs> but then he wrote and he said that he actually set the whole thing on fire, the thing on the top. So I thought, "Oi!" <laughs> I mean, you do try and say, you know, take care when you're working with caramel. Mm. Be really careful. So, you know, you have to drop these notes in. I once did the spinning of sugar, hot sugar. <laughs> I mean, that, that can be actually dangerous, <laughs> it's huh? really, really. Sometimes I write things that happen to me, like, and remember to do that because, like, I burn myself or, like, I turn on the Vitamix with the jam and there was a lid on top and yeah. things like that. It's, it's helpful. And you know what Julia said, that you think that she knows how to make an arista. Not everybody knows how to do those things. And things which seem so easy in one nation are impossible. Like if I try and cook like an oriental meal, it doesn't come to me naturally to squash the clove of garlic like the nonna does over here and, you know, let it sit in the oil or like the Greek way. You, you watch other people and you think it does not come naturally to you this, you know, so it's interesting to learn that. So in your words, you can just try and convey that to people. And I think that's, it's a wonderful medium to use, isn't it? And pictures. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, well, well, thank you guys. Thank you both, Tessa and Julia. Thank that's you. been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. If you guys would like to take a look. Thank you for such a wonderful audience. Thank you to you. They'll be around to answer any questions. Uh, there's a couple of books. Julia's invited all of you to her house. Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> so. Sunday. Yeah, okay. Sunday. <laughs>
This is the end of the sixth episode of our podcast, Cooking with an Italian Accent. If you have questions about Italian Tuscan cooking, just email me at jules at juleskitchen.com or join our Facebook group, Cooking with Jules Kitchen. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you are listening to a podcast and share it with your friends too. Don't forget to visit juleskitchen.com to discover new stories and recipes from Tuscany. Tuscany.